following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Sunday, amen? Amen. Amen. It's good to see everybody out this morning. Good to see everybody ready to celebrate Jesus, and we are um, super excited to be joining you in that celebration. We will talk a little bit about this morning a passage that we visited last week, and and so John chapter 11 is a passage that we just preached from, um, and and it's, it's pertaining to Um, a man by the name of Lazarus and his family, Mary and Martha, uh, who are two dear sisters of Lazarus. And and Lazarus dies, and Lazarus returns. He comes back from the grave. And so the story has a a very somber beginning, a very solemn beginning, a very very sorrowful beginning, because this is two women uh, coming to Jesus and pleading for, for for their brother. And and they, and they plead with they plead for their brother, and Jesus seem from from all from from all indicators. If you're just reading it, it seems that he doesn't respond um, in a way that you would expect Jesus to respond. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But it ends up ending on a high note, as we all know. If you've ever heard the gospel or you've ever heard the, the biblical story about Lazarus, you know how this story ends, where, where Lazarus is, is called forth, uh, called for out of his own tomb, and, he, and that he comes forth from the grave, even though he, he dies, literally dies, and he comes back. Jesus calling him from the tomb, he comes back from the grave. But smack dead in the middle of that, smack dead in the center of that, if you will, is a very interesting passage that's uh, found in verse, it begins in verse 17, and I would like, uh, I would like to take a moment and just uh, read it if you, if you have it. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 17, and it reads, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, But Mary remained seated in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's where we want to fix our attention. That's where we want to fix our attention. I want to talk to you about a couple of things this morning. Let's start by talking about the necessity for, the necessity for a resurrection. Why is a resurrection necessary? Why is, why is it even Expected. Why should we even look for a resurrection? Martha says in verse 21 that, I, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. God will give you. Martha is distraught. Martha is a little confused by, by Jesus' 
probably what she sees as a lack of response. Remember, we're talking about um, if, 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 um, if you've ever read this story or even if you were here last week, maybe you weren't, so I'll share this with you. But we're talking about hearing, hearing word from Martha and Mary about Lazarus being ill. And when he hears that word, Jesus, when he hears that word, he does not leave for another two days. He hears about this illness, and he does not leave for another two days. And then he decides to make the journey over to Bethany. And by the time he makes the journey to Bethany, as we just read, Lazarus has already died, and he has been dead for four days. And so Martha's probably a little distraught. Martha's a little, little, a little probably confused by Jesus' lack of response as she probably perceives it. But from what we can tell... Though she's a little doubtful, though she's a little distraught, though she's a little confused, based on the fact that she sees Jesus' timing as, as not in her timing, but nevertheless still hopeful. Because she says this, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so Jesus' timing is not conducive to her timing. Jesus' timing is even what, what she probably perceives as an impediment to Jesus actually doing the work that he was supposed to do. But nevertheless, she's still hopeful for her brother. She says, I'll see him one day. I'll see him, I'll see him on the other side, as, as, we, as we sometimes say. But despite, the, the, despite all that, here's, here's, what's, here's the thing. She's right and she's wrong. She's right in the sense that, yes, I'll see my brother again. She's wrong in the sense of when I'll see my brother again. Jesus says that, that I'm going to bring your brother back, and she says, yeah, sure, we know we'll see him then later on down the road. But, but if she listened a little closer, what she would find out is that Jesus has plans to resurrect her brother right then and right there. But let's stop there for a second. Let's just ask the question, or not even ask the question, but let's just think about this. Even though her brother is dead, she still has hope. So let's talk about the necessity of resurrection. Why is it necessary? The resurrection gives us hope in ways that absent of the resurrection, we would not have it. Why is life beyond the grave such a big deal? Why is the resurrection so important? Because this life is hard. This life is extremely hard, and this life is extremely tumultuous. There's a lot of highs and lows in this life, and in this life, every single one of us are guaranteed to lose the people that we love or be the one that, that, that the, those that we love mourn and cry over. This life is difficult, and if there is no resurrection, then what that means is that all those tears, all those tears have no high endings, have no happy endings, have no, have, no, have no reasonable conclusions. Life doesn't contain any meaning and life doesn't contain any significance if the only thing we're called here to do is be born, suffer, and then die. Does that make sense? 
As a matter of fact, what you notice even as a trend, it, it what's happening in, in our state, in our, in our world, in our society is that as technology increases and as our quality of life advances and people are getting brighter and smarter and gaining more knowledge and gaining more insight, it's leading to a renouncement of God. They're saying, well, well we, we're smart enough now, we don't need God anymore. But what it's also leading to is as more and more people renounce God, more and more people are growing nihilistic about life. Nihilistic means nothing. Is that they see this they see this life as having no meaning. They see this life as having no significance. They're starting to ask the question, what's the point? Why should I be good? If 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 all I'm going to be is dust a few years from now, then why should I be good? Why should I help my neighbor? Why should I not do whatever I want to do? Why should I be faithful to my spouse? What does it really mean? As a matter of fact, one of my great, uh, great uh, mentors I just love listening to and just gleaning from, Dr. Carl Ellis, he talks about what's happening in urban communities across the, across the country and what he, calls it, 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 what he calls it, the concept of young black men, young African-American men, young black and brown for that, uh, for that matter, African-American men and women that are growing up very jaded, very hard-shelled, losing interest in, in performing, losing interest in success. What he calls it is ghetto nihilism. He says there is a type of nihilism that is birthing out of our urban context where kids are saying, listen, I'm not going to get out of here and there is nothing on the other side for me. My schools are jacked up. My home is jacked up. There's no way I'm going to succeed in life. So why should I care? Are you, are you tracking with that? In other words, the growing tension not just in ghetto nihilism is one element, but also atheistic nihilism is happening also in more of, the, more of the conservative, more of the prominent, more of the affluent cultures and communities where both sides are saying, what's the use? What's the point? And without the resurrection, they have a good point. Without the resurrection, there is really nothing to life. If all I'm going to do is work myself to the bone and then return back to dust and have somebody crying over me, then I best find something else to do. Are you tracking with that? Paul understands this because Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead were not raised or the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's useless. It's wasted energy, it's wasted effort. He continues, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ also have perished. In other words, those that died before you, then they're perished, they're gone, they're dust, they're not coming back. In verse 19, he says this in chapter 15. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all this life winds up to it's just doing some stuff and then dying. Why not just go do some other stuff and have fun with it? 
Are you tracking with that? Like, I, I can't, like I, sometimes I can't process how people can say there is no God and still be responsible adults, right? I mean, if, if, I, was, if I was out there saying, you know, and maybe somebody's in here who's saying that, but let me, let me share this with you. If I was out there saying there is no God, I would be acting a fool. Do you understand me? My life would be chaos. Because, I mean, what's the point? The understanding that there is something beyond this life breathes hope into this life. The understanding that there is something beyond this life makes this life actually worth living. This is what makes the resurrection important, but not just any resurrection. This is what makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ important. The resurrection back into this life versus the resurrection into another life is altogether different, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Just being raised to live in this life again is totally different than being raised to live into a totally, uh, a totally new life, all right? And we're going to talk about that before we close this. But verse 20, uh, 25 of John chapter 11, this is what Jesus says to Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. So you need a resurrection, right? You need a resurrection. We need a resurrection. So where do we go for that resurrection? Jesus says, you come to me. I am the resurrection. I am the life. He secures our hope. He, he builds our hope. He establishes our hope in those words. I am the resurrection and the life. Mary and Martha and others are looking for a resurrection. Even, even, though, even though Martha doesn't believe Lazarus is coming back, she's still expecting a resurrection, right? And where can I get that? And all the others are expecting a resurrection. The, the, the Jewish culture even was, are, are expecting a resurrection, while they are hopeful that this life is not the end, they are still somewhat blind to the significance of what's to come, though. They're expecting a resurrection, but they don't know where it's coming from. Jesus turns our focus away from the resurrection as an event, and he places it into the resurrection as a person. Are you tracking with that? He says, don't look for an event. I am the resurrection. Look for me. Don't look for a date. Don't look for a time. Look for me. Because in me you will find everything pertaining to the resurrection that you need to know. Does that make sense? Jesus is saying here that our hope is not a series of events. Our hope is not merely an event itself. It is in the giver of those events that our hope lies. And Jesus is the giver of those events. In these words, I am the resurrection and I am the life. In these words, we see Jesus' greatness. For every other person that has come before Christ, whether it be Moses, whether it be Joshua, whether it be David, whether it be Elijah, they've all looked to a resurrection. Are you tracking with that? They've searched for a resurrection. They've hoped and longed for a resurrection. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I don't have to look anywhere. I'm it. Everybody comes through me in order to find life. In these words, we see the sufficiency of Christ as well. Think about the fact that death, is there no greater enemy to humanity than death? Death is our old, old, old friend. 
as Xavier used to say to Magneto in X-Men. As we stated moments ago, it robs us, death robs us of hope, it robs us of meaning, it robs us of significance, because if all I have to look forward to is death, then what in the world am I doing? But in Christ, everything that relates back to death has been conquered, because in Christ, we have everything we need for life. If Christ can conquer death, let me, let me share something with you. If Christ can conquer death, then what are you concerned about your issues for? So in those words, I am the resurrection, I am the life, we find the sufficiency of Jesus. He has taken care of our most pressing issue by conquering the grave. If he can conquer the grave, then there's nothing else that he can't do. There's nothing for us to worry about. Bills, are you serious? I conquered the grave. Are you tracking with that? Marital problems, relational problems. I conquered the grave. Substance abuse. I conquered the grave. There is no limit to what he can do because he has taken care of humanity's greatest enemy. So all the other smaller enemies cannot compare. But also in these words, we see the raw power of Christ. What Jesus declares in these words is that there is not a place, not a moment, not a time, and not a barrier that I can't cross to bring life to the dead. I am the, resur I am the resurrection. You don't need special circumstances. Martha's thinking we need special circumstances, right? She's like, hey, Jesus, if you would have got here four days earlier, this would have turned out different. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? I'm the resurrection, right? There's no conditions that need to be met for me to breathe life. I am life. Are you tracking with that? And so when you're thinking about whatever your, whatever your life consists of in terms of dead moments, or not even dead moments, but just dead souls, make no mistake about it, there is no place that is too far, that is, there is no time too late for God to breathe life. His power is on display in those words. I am the resurrection and I am the life. He's not waiting on the right moment to resurrect. He embodies resurrection. When we talked about this last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus waited. That he hears about Lazarus being sick in the earlier part of John chapter 11 and he waits. And we said, we, we asked ourselves the question, why is he waiting, right? And then we uncovered this as we were talking about this together. We said in verse 3 of chapter 11... So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So he loves him. And we said, we can't deny that. The sisters know it. Jesus says it. Right? We know he loves him. And then he continues on and he says in verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved her sister. I'm continuing verse 5. Jesus loved Lazarus. And then it says this. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And we, talk, we talked about the fact that, that that 
phrasing, that order of words would mess us up under normal circumstances. He loved him. He loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. So he didn't go. That's what it says. Because he loved him. But there is great intentionality in Jesus waiting those two extra days. Literally waiting on Lazarus to die because he loves him. How does that work? But by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And we see in verse 5 that part of Jesus' love for Martha and Lazarus, if you weren't here last week, part of that love is to unfold and unveil, rather, his glory to them. He says that this sin, this sickness, rather, is not unto death, but that in order that the Son may be glorified through it. It is for the glory of God. And so, it's loving for them to go through the experience, to go through the grief, to go through the sorrow, to go through the isolation and the loneliness. It's it's loving for them to even see death of their own loved one. It's loving for them because it is for the glory of God, and it is in order that the, um, the son's glory might be made manifest to them or might be manifested to them. That's why it's loving. So he loves his own by allowing experiences in their lives and in our lives that will allow us to see him in a deeper and more spectacular and brighter light. Do you understand that? We shared last week that because he loves us sometimes, things will get worse before they get better. Precisely because he loves us. And you say, I don't understand that. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone through something in your life, gone through an experience, a tough experience, a rough experience, Maybe a relational experience, maybe an illness, or maybe a death in the family, or maybe um, a near miss on a car, in a car accident, or maybe a struggle at work. Have you ever gone through something in your life, and then minutes later, maybe, maybe days later, maybe years later, look back on that experience and say, man, I did not like it when I went through it, but I'm so glad I went through it. I needed that. Have you ever been through that? Now magnify that to the infinite degree. Because what I'm telling you is that all of your sufferings, all of your heartaches, all of those things have not been revealed to you yet. That you're going to get to heaven and you're going to be with God and God is going to blow your mind about some of the things that he was doing through your struggles. You're going to find that some of your struggles had ninth degree impacts that it touched, touched some dude in Nebraska. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't even know that guy, right? But your struggle impacted somebody else who impacted somebody else who impacted somebody else, and then next thing you know, your struggle was changing the life of someone in Nebraska. That's what you're going to find out in eternity. You're going to see that God was doing glorious things through your struggle. And so here, he loves us, and because he loves us, he allows the struggle of death for Lazarus so that when he shows up on the scene, they can see his power on display. Christ sets this experience up in such a way where his power cannot be denied, save for the, you know, just the people that are just bent on denying him. But he sets it up in such a way that it cannot be denied. Think about this, 24 to 72 hours after death. The internal organs decompose. 
24 to 72 hours after death, the internal organs decompose. Three to five days after death, the body starts to blow. No, they didn't use embalming fluid for, for Lazarus. He didn't keep, right? He immediately started the process of body, bodily decomposition. So when Jesus shows up four days later, his internal organs are completely, completely destroyed. No heart or a very, very futile heart, very feeble heart. No liver, no kidneys, no lungs, or all of them in massive, massive disarray. He shows up on the scene then. Brain is completely destroyed. He shows up on the scene then. This man needs a new heart, new liver, new lungs, new kidneys, new brain. Jesus is like, I'm here. All right, let's get this thing started. Right? Jesus, where you been? Right? He was sick a couple of days ago. You could have did something about it then. He had pneumonia. Right? Now his body's decomposing. We've put scents around him to keep him from smelling. We don't even want to open the tomb because the, because the smell, the stench after a few days is now reeking out from the tomb. And Jesus says, all right, let's, let's do this. That is Christ showing his love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Because never will there ever be a day again where they say, that Jesus can't do what he wants to do. Are you tracking with that? But if he says he's the resurrection, then one of the things that we have to challenge ourselves with is the question, is there proof for that? And I think there is. I think there is. You know, one, Desiring God breaks this down, uh, desiringgod.com or desiringgod.org. Uh, breaks this down in, in, in three in three ways in three steps and and you depending on what 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 uh what reading you take up and what site you go to and what historian or theologian you uh you read from you'll you'll hear different ways in which this is broken down but it's three ways that I think is a really good summary of it and this is three proofs of Jesus's resurrection one is that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered empty by a group of women on the Sunday following the crucifixion was discovered empty. We know that there were guards that were, that were tasked with watching the tomb. Matthew 28 tells us that the guards were told, basically, hey, tell, tell everybody that the disciples stole, stole the body. But we know that that's a, strong, that's, that's, a tough, that's a tough sell for us. If the guards were clumsy enough to let someone come in and rob and steal the body, I need you to understand something, Rome would not take kindly to that. Those guards would not go and confess anything related to a body being stolen because they know the punishment would be harsh, severe, possibly even death. But the idea that, the idea that even Jesus in this narrative that they would use women to bring about the testimony of this resurrection is odd. Because in Jewish culture in that day and time, women's testimony was not considered credible. Not only was it not considered credible, they weren't even allowed to testify in matters of law. 
And so the very fact that they use that, that they use a woman's testimony, besides God elevating women in, in the midst of a culture that wants to keep them low, besides him doing that, but he's also showing, guess what? This is pretty, this is pretty, um, pretty true. Because if, if, it, if we were just making it up, we wouldn't take what you are accustomed to hearing as incredible or uncredible and try to put it, put it forth as credible. Does that make sense? If we were making up a story, we would take the credible witnesses. We wouldn't take the people that you wouldn't believe. But not only is the empty tomb reason to think about Jesus' resurrection as being authentic, but also the real experiences with the one, uh, with the one whom they believe was the real risen Christ. Jesus' disciples, when, when, they, when, they, when they found him, Paul talks about not just, not just the disciples and the apostles, but all of his followers. He talks about a, a, a number of about 500 people in all saw the risen Savior. And Paul made this claim while those people were alive. And anybody could go to them and say, hey, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. You serious? Did, Jesus really, did, did, he really, did you really see him? And Bobby's like, yeah, I saw him, you know? Well, let me go ask, let me, okay, that's, that's one out of 500. Let me go ask another guy. Literally, plenty of people you could literally go to and talk to and ask, did this happen? Anybody that can make this non-credible. But not only that, think about the disciples themselves, the apostles themselves. Good Friday, fearful, scattered, cowering in their corner. After Good Friday, Saturday comes, Sunday comes, and next thing you know, a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, the same group that was fearful and cowarding are now boldly testifying to the world about him, going in front of authorities and saying, listen, we must obey God and not man. That was not the same crew that Jesus had on Good Friday. That was not the same crew. Something happened. Something happened. Sunday happened. Chuck Colson um, was arrested years ago for um, his part in the Watergate scandal that rocked the White House um, years and years and years ago, decades ago. He says this about it. He, he, he got saved in prison. He says this about the resurrection. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was, every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. And they would not have endured that if, they would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? And not only keep it, but die for it. You tracking with that? Can I get 12 people in this room to keep a lie? Especially, if, especially, if they, especially after keeping a lie for so long, somebody says, okay, we didn't have enough of y'all, right? Somebody better tell us the truth for you. We're going to start shooting somebody. Okay, okay, you know what? <laughs> it, was a, it was a joke, bro. It was a joke. Are you tracking with that? But these 12 men not only kept the story, but they died for it. Something happened. 
to change a group of people that didn't even want to associate themselves with the man to literally lay down their lives for him. Something happened. So there is proof, and there is reasonable proof. There's credible proof for the resurrection. There's credible proof for Jesus saying the words, I am the resurrection and the life. There is historical proof for those words. Let's look at the latter part of this text and and see what he says in verse 25. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So in reading this, now you realize that Jesus' purpose for being here in this moment is greater than the surface would indicate. He is doing more than resurrecting a dead man's body. He is interested in resurrecting dead people's souls. That's why he's on, that's why he's on the scene. He talks to Martha. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Whoever lives and believes in me, I'm sorry, whoever lives and believes in me, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. The first part is the resurrection part. Though they die, yet shall they live. The second part is the life part. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's not everyone who's breathing, all right? It's everyone who's living a life in him. And so Jesus begins to lay out the conditions for the, for the resurrection. And you realize that his purpose for doing everything that he does, his purpose for healing on the Sabbath, his purpose for sending, sending word back to the, centurion's, uh, to the centurion's ill servant and having him healed just by a word, his purpose for allowing the woman to touch the hem of his garment and be healed, his purpose for turning water into wine, his purpose for all these things are driving us, not simply to those works themselves, but are driving us to a place so that we might believe. As a matter of fact, John's gospel, the very purpose of John's gospel, he says, is so that you may see the works and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. God is doing salvific work in all of his work. He is driving you towards salvation. Does that make sense? So he doesn't keep you for no reason. He's not interested in keeping you just for keeping sake. He's not interested in, he's not interested in paying bills just to pay bills. Not interested in giving you a job just to give you a job. Not interested in, in, in making your life, you know, and changing things in your life, rearranging things in your life, putting you in better company, putting you in better spaces. He's not interested in showing himself mighty and strong just for the sake of you having better things or just for, you, just for the sake of you saying, oh, man, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. That's not what he's interested in. He is driving you towards salvation. He's driving you towards saying that, yes, I trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and I will submit my life to him. That's what he's doing. 
So the question is, are you there? Are you, are you, are you receiving these things and saying to yourself, Lord, I see what you're doing. I see why I'm here. I see, why li- I see that life has meaning. Even if life is a struggle, I see that this is not the end for me. I see there, there is more life to be lived beyond this. I see what you're doing, and so I submit myself to you on that. I submit my life to you. He says in verse 26, after saying those things, he says to, to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe? Listen, do you believe that I am the resurrection, I am the life? Do you believe that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die? Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the, you are the Christ, the son, of the, the son of God who is coming into the world. So Martha gets it, right? Martha knows that he's talking about something beyond this life. He's talking about things. Yes, he's going to heal my brother. I see that now, right? I see that now. And yet and still I know that he's talking about other things. That's why I acknowledge that he is the Christ. I acknowledge that he is the son of God, the savior of the world. And I acknowledge that he has come into the world incarnate to save it. See, here's the thing about Lazarus, right? Let's say Jesus is is ready to heal Lazarus. And he heals him. And Lazarus lives, lives another 50 years. A beautiful 50 years. And say his life is, say he has more money than he's ever had in this next, next 50. And say all these re, reinvented and recreated organs function like never before. He's never sick another day of his life. And say him and his family have wonderful relationships for the next 50 years. Say all these things are true and say Lazarus dies at the end of that 50 years, having been resurrected and lived another 50 years and dies. Let me tell you something. Lazarus is in the same boat of nihilism, emptiness, meaningless, wastefulness as everybody else. See, that resurrection isn't, what, isn't where the story is, nor is it where good news is ultimately fulfilled. That is a fantastic story, right? That is a beautiful story. But if that's where it ends... Somebody, you know, somebody pumps, pumps me back up and I got some life and some wind in me to go and live in this world another 50 years. If that's where it ends, still empty. Because I still go back to the grave. I still go back to the dust. People weep, weep and cry at my funeral, live in grief, and there is nothing beyond that to show for it. But Jesus is not driving us to that end. He resurrects Lazarus to tell you that there is a greater resurrection to come. He resurrects Lazarus to point to his own resurrection. He resurrects Lazarus to point not only to his own resurrection, but he resurrects Lazarus to point you to the fact that because I am the resurrection, anyone who comes to me and through me shall be resurrected. And not just resurrected to live another 50 years in this life and in this sinful world, but resurrected to eternity to live in perfection and to live in complete and total satisfaction with the Father in heaven. That's why he resurrects Lazarus. That's where the real miracle happens. Do you understand that? Resurrecting Lazarus is peanuts compared to waking up our dead souls. 
That's why he does it. And so our, our aim, our goal this morning as we leave this place is to celebrate him, not just because he raised the dead on this day, but to celebrate him because he is raising the dead every single day. And he is raising them and preparing them for not just this world, but he's preparing them for a brand new one. And in that one, there will no longer ever, ever again be death. Amen? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we love you and thank you and appreciate you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your resurrection that we celebrate because it is in your resurrection, Lord God, that our resurrection is made possible, God. Father, we ask and we pray that, that you would help us come to trust you with our lives, to lay them down for your sake, to turn from all things, Lord God, that would impede us from coming to you, that would keep us from coming to you and submitting our lives to you. Father, we ask and we pray, Lord God, that you would do this for your great name's sake and you would do this for your glory and honor. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.